Today we are observing the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels. That feast occurs on September the 29th, and we transferred it to uh, today. Uh, and though modern people tend to view the world through the lens of materialism, that is that material is all that there is, even though I think it was a 2017 study which said 55% of Americans believed in angels, which is much lower than it would have been um, 10 or 20 years earlier. So even though we have all that, interest in and fascination with angels have persisted. I mean, this is especially true in popular culture. Just think back over the last three or four decades of all the movies and TV shows uh, about angels or that have angels as characters in them. Highway to Heaven, anyone remember that? Michael Landon, right? <laughs> Touched by an angel, of course. Uh, City of Angels, Nicolas Cage, one of Jonathan's favorite movies, of course. <laughs> and you Meg Ryan fans. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life, of course, has an angel in it. Uh, Supernatural, that's a more, I think, hip one that the kids watch. I have not seen it. Uh, though I'm told I, I should. I mean, the list goes on and on. Now, the, uh, the above, and most of the stuff you're going to see on uh, TV, it's not exactly a biblical exposi exposition of angels. You know, it's not an orthodox, what we would call angelology. But they do point to something that's true and real, namely, that that which is real is not merely what can be perceived by the five senses. There's more to life, there's more to the cosmos than that. In fact, that which is at present unseen, veiled as it were from our eyes, is more real than what we now see. For what is seen is temporal, but what is unseen is eternal. The Bible begins this way. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the creation of the heavens includes heavenly beings, namely angels. And angels are uh, pure spirits, which can manifest in physical form. But they are not flesh and blood, rather purely spiritual. Now, we human beings are spiritual beings as well. But we're not uh, pure spirit. We, we have bodies. We have what could be called uh, an animal nature. We are flesh and blood. Thus, human beings and angels are both creatures, but the two are not the, so the same kind of creatures. Um, spoiler alert, uh, you will not turn into an angel when you die. An sorry, sorry, Steve. Angels are not dead humans. They're different creatures. Also, this is important to understand, Jesus is not an angel. But rather, Jesus is the Word made flesh, made human. He's the one of whom the angels sing glory to God in the highest. Now, the word angel, angelos in Greek, means messenger. And this is one of the primary jobs of angels, the delivering of messages, the heralding, if you will, of God's will. 
and God's purposes in creation and redemption. The most famous example of this is, of course, the Annunciation, where the angel Gabriel announces to Mary that she is to be the God-bearer, the Theotokos, the mother of God. Angels, they do lots of things. Angels also provide aid to human beings, especially Christians. As angels ministered to Christ in the wilderness, remember that after his temptation, the angels come and they, they ministered to him. He was not alone in the wilderness. As the angels ministered to Christ, so do angels minister to the church and her members. For the church is the body of Christ. And this ministry, this is an important thing to understand. So there's a ministry of angels to you as believers in Jesus Christ. But it's important to understand that their ministry to us is unto salvation. That's the goal. So angels aren't interested in doing parlor tricks, you know. magic for you. Their primary concern and charge is not our temporal happiness or even our bodily health, but the salvation of our souls. Hebrews 1.14, speaking of angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So as there are fallen angels, Demons, we call them, working and battling to destroy our souls. The men's ministry just finished the book on screw tape letters. So as that's dramatized in that book by C.S. Lewis, so are there holy angels working and giving us aid so that our souls might find rest in the presence and vision of God. Brothers and sisters, as St. Paul says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And God, in his love and care for us, by the ministry of these mysterious, admittedly mysterious beings we call angels, he ensures that we do not enter the fray alone. God has given his angels charge over us. When you think of this, when you think of battle, and you think of the angels, you immediately think of St. Michael. St. Michael is an archangel, literally chief angel. In Daniel 10, he is called one of the chief princes, and whereas Gabriel is the great messenger, Michael is the great defender. Our Lord is the Lord of hosts. That is, what is it, Lord of hosts? I mean, that is, he's the Lord of the army of angels. And Michael is his mighty warrior. In the Old Testament, Michael fought for and defended Israel. And now he does the same for the renewed Israel, which is the church. Now, When we talk about Satan, Satan is not God's evil opposite. That's called dualism. There's two equally powerful forces that are are battling it out. Satan is a fallen angel and therefore a creature. God is the creator. But if the unholy angel Satan has a counterpart, 
It would not be God. It would be the holy archangel Michael. His very name, which means who is like God, is a contrast and rebuke to the one who in pride said, I will ascend to God's throne. We see in the book of Revelation, today's epistle, uh, Michael warring and prevailing over Satan by the power of Christ. In the short book of Jude, uh, verse 9 is written. This is a wild verse, so buckle up. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So there's this dispute about what to do with Moses' body. And Michael and Satan are, are warring. What's going on here? Well, in Jude, we don't get a lot of contact, context. But the tradition is, is that what does Satan do? Think about the book of Job. He accuses us before God. He wants to see us condemned. And he is saying, Mo, the tradition goes, Moses was not worthy of a burial because he had murdered a man back in Egypt. So whereas Satan is our accuser and he's the great deceiver, Michael is our advocate and defender. I think we can take heart that the devil and his angels do not operate upon humanity and the world uninhibited. Rather, Michael and the army of angels, in the name and power of Christ, war against them on our behalf. I think one of the things, when you're talking about angels, one of the things that gets written off as either an aberration of medieval Catholicism or as pre-enlightenment superstition or perhaps as a Hollywood invention is the idea of guardian angels, that every single person has an angel to whom he or she is entrusted. You may be surprised to find out that belief in guardian angels is grounded in the scriptures and in the ancient church. In Matthew 18, where our Lord is ex exhorting his disciples to welcome children to God, essentially. To welcome them into the life of the church and the life of God's people. And warning against leading them into sin. That's where Jesus says, if you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It'd be better if you tied a millstone around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. God takes children seriously. This is what Jesus says. He goes on, he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. So Jesus is saying, God has entrusted these precious little ones to the care of angels What's your problem? <laughs> it's, it's just assumed. I'll give you one more example. In Acts 12, we, we see this just assumption in the, in the ancient church about the activity of angels. In Acts 12, when Peter is arrested by Herod Agrippa, who had uh, just had James, the bro brother of John, killed, Peter is delivered from prison by an angel. Meanwhile, there were a group of Christians gathered at the house of Mary, that is, a different Mary, John Mark's mother, and Peter shows up at the gate. The first to see him is a servant girl named Rhoda, and this is a really funny story. 
recognizing, recognizing Peter's voice. So she shows up at this gate in the middle of the night. Recognizing, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. It just leaves him hanging out there. They said to her, you are out of your mind, but she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's, it's his angel. It's not him, he's in prison or he's dead. Angels are divine heralds. They're defenders of the faithful. They're ministers to the heirs of salvation. They're the executors of judgment. They're heavenly water, warriors. And finally, angels are worshipers. The tabernacle and the temple after which it was a copy, a copy of the heavenly temple, that is, was adorned with angels. The cherubim were mounted upon the Ark of the Covenant. In the vision of Isaiah, the seraphim, the seraphim cry responsively, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of, God of hosts. Angels, though most of the time invisible, are all around us. There are dimensions of reality, layers of reality, if you will, that are not experienced by the senses, that are not known empirically, as it were. So they're present, and they're no more, they are nowhere more present than in the worship of the church, than at the altar where the body of our Lord lies and we join and worship as the church. We join and mystically represent angels and archangels in the adoration of the thrice holy God. We see this in, in church architecture. In a, a church that's laid out in the traditional way, you'll have the nave where the congregation sits. You'll have the choir facing one another. Have we seen this? And then past that is the sanctuary where the altar is. You have to understand when you're, when you're moving east, as it were, in a church, you're really going up. So flip it up on its axis and imagine it like this. And so Christ is seated on the choir of angels. And we who sing, we represent and join the angels in worship. St. Gregory the Great said, not that I really think you need a proof from a church father, but he said nearly every page of scripture testifies to the existence of angels and archangels. And angels are not only present and active in the scriptures, but throughout history, throughout the history of the church, and even in modern times. And sometimes... The activity of angels is manifested and revealed in extraordinary ways. I mean, there are countless accounts of people encountering angels, or at least, sometimes they're not sure, what seems to be angelic activity. There's a philosopher uh, who was trained at Harvard, and he tells a story about going out and swimming in the ocean alone, and he got caught in the undertow, and he was in trouble, and he was in peril, danger, in danger of drowning, when out of nowhere, he was pulled to safety. And he, he sees this big burly guy, and he's, he's sputtering and catching his breath, probably on all fours, you know, if you've ever gotten in trouble swimming in the ocean. And as he went to get the words out to thank the man who had rescued him, the man simply laughed and disappeared. Uh, this experience actually was instrumental in his conversion to Christianity. 
I'll give you one more story. And again, there are thousands upon thousands of these over the last 2,000 years. So there's another story by an African-American journalist named Phil Taylor. In the 1960s, so segregation had just ended, he was enrolled at the school, and he was kindergarten, he's only six years old. He's enrolled as the first black student in an all-white school. Segregation has just ended. As, as you can imagine, it doesn't take much imagination. Things were tough for him. He was picked on. He was taunted. And so one day, he had just had enough, and he runs away from school. Six years old. He's just trying to get away. He comes to the sixth... He comes to this six-lane expressway, which is very for, dangerous for anyone to cross, much less a six-year-old, much less a small child. And just as he was about to cross, he feels this hand on his shoulder. Phil recalls that the lady, it was a lady. She looked like a lady. She had black skin like he did. She was short. <laughs> She wore clothes that reminded him uh, of his grandmother. And this kind lady walked this six-year-old boy home. And then as they get to the door, without going in to speak to his family, which is what you would expect, right? If you were to help a child, (laughs) you're going to walk them home. You think you're going to make sure they get inside. You're going to talk to an adult and make sure they're good before you walk. So as soon as they get there, without going inside, again... He says she disappeared. Now he ends his article, he ends this story. He says, was that my garden angel? He doesn't know. Sometimes we won't know on this side of heaven. But regardless of whether or not it was, that was angelic activity at work. Now most of us will never have experiences like the two. I told you, some of us may. But it is possible that in the course of our lives, we will, as the writer of Hebrew puts it, entertain angels unaware. It's a great line. You'll come in contact with one and you'll never know it. But, and, and, and this, this is the, the crux of the sermon. It is certain, not just probable, but it is certain, brothers and sisters, that all of us have been and will continue to be ministered to by angels, regardless of whether or not we perceive with our carnal senses their presence or action. So I'll close with this. How should we think of angels? What sort of relationship, if any, should we have with them? There is, of course, the danger of idolizing the angels, which the book of Hebrews addresses. St. Paul, also in the book of Colossians, warns against the false teaching of worshiping angels. In Revelation, uh, St. John, towards the end, he falls down at the feet of an angel to worship him. The angel who was mediating the apocalyptic vision. And the angel says to him, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So we aren't to worship the angels. But I suspect that our problem is not that we make too much of the angels, but that we make too little of them.
We should be thankful for their ministry. We should recognize them as eternal friends and co-laborers in the kingdom of God. We should desire to imitate and join them in their worship, service, and obedience unto Almighty God. And since they are all around us and are charged by God with our care, we should not hesitate to invoke them and ask for their assistance, to ask God to send his holy angels to watch over us. Part of the communion of the saints is fellowship with the angels. So brothers and sisters, let us be mindful of the realities of the world which are veiled from our eyes, that we are surrounded by heavenly hosts, and in so doing that, our minds will be set on things above, not on things that are the earth. Our hearts will be set on eternity, rather on things that are passing away. And as we move towards the Holy Eucharist, let us stand and kneel in awe as we join with St. Michael and all the angels in adoration of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.